You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. I'm glad you're here. I thought it'd just be about four of us this morning, um, but here you are. Um, welcome. Now let's begin with prayer, and we'll and we'll dive in. Father, thank you for uh, what you've already given us this morning in the teaching and the preaching of your word, and Lord, the fact that we together as your people have come before you to hear your word announced and to identify ourselves before you as sinners and those who are standing in need of mercy and and how you meet us week in and week out with your announcement of forgiveness and healing in your Son. And we can't get over it, Lord. We're grateful. And I pray today, as we enter into um, the second week of this series, that you'll help the teacher and those who are here to listen, that you, Lord, would help us to have ears to hear, that we, we would attend, Lord, to the way in which we hear. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have a phone, a Bible on your phone, or something like that, I'm in Luke 8 again today. And we started a series last week on the parables, if you'll recall, and uh, we talked a little bit, I'll put the card just slightly in reverse and then we'll move forward, but we talked a little bit last week about the effective power of a story uh, to give us um, eyes and to give us an ability to see in ways that we can't normally see from within our own story and narrative. We get, we get locked into our own world, understandably so. We can't escape. I was talking with somebody about this over the weekend. You know, we, we can't escape our bodies. And because we can't escape our bodies, that means we are, by, ne- by necessity of that reality, we're limited in our scope and our ability to see often beyond the horizons of our own nose. Um, and this is, you know, this is a challenge to all of us. I, I've, I've got children in my home um, who are a mirror of my own worst self. I see it all the time. And, um, and one of them in particular who has... Uh, <laughs> um, who, whose confidence in his error and falsehood is remarkable, you know. Um, I mean, we'll, we'll debate statistics about a baseball player, and he's like, oh, no, he's never done that. I'm like, it's right here on my phone, son. Sorry, no, no, that's what's wrong. So the point is, we, we can get locked into our own world, and the beauty of a story, the beauty of a narrative, of a parable, um, is, and this was the, the terminology that we used last week, borrowing it from Soren Kierkegaard, it's, it's indirect discourse and communication. It, it allows uh, the one who's presenting the story to bring a rather challenging message, something that's probing, something that sort of penetrates beyond the surface of our existence down to the core of our being, and it allows that to happen not by a kind of bold, propositional front door entrance. I'm here to announce to you that you are X, Y, and Z. Now, my, I can remember even being a camp counselor, a Christian counselor. Maybe some of you are the product of Christian counsel, uh, camp abuse. Um, <laughs> but I was one of those people. You know, I was a Christian camp counselor. And, but I can remember some, some, some of the best advice I was given as a counselor back in those you know, early days 
Um, a question will arouse the conscience where, where a, an accusation will often harden the will. You know, I see that. And when you come to the front door and you sort of announce this about the other person, but Jesus rarely, he, he will do that. He does it often, by the way, with um, both the religious and the rich. He goes after people in that way, kind of, kind of, kind of punch them right the chin. Um, but oftentimes Jesus will come into the back door, and he does that by the use of parable, a story that allows, that, that disarms you as a listener, um, and challenges you. And then all of a sudden, before you know it, you blink, and you, as we mentioned last week, Jesus is sitting on the, um, in the couch in the living room having a very direct conversation with you, and you're not quite sure how he got there. Um, and that's, that's, the, that's the nature of, of parabolic discourse. I dropped your name last week, Jim. You weren't here just talking about, about, um, about uh, fiction. and Yeah, so anyway. Um, so uh, the, and the other thing that we mentioned last week, and this will sort of dive in, I, want, I do want to read Luke 8 as well. Um, is the importance of locating the parables within a prophetic context of the Old Testament itself. Uh, so, for example, in the previous uh, chapter of Luke, chapter 7, uh, Jesus uh, raises a widow's son. And so when he raises this widow's son from the dead, um, this is what they say in verse 16. They were filled with awe and they praised God. And they said, a great prophet has appeared among us. God has come to help his people. And then the news about Jude Jesus began to spread through Judea and then the surrounding country. How did, how did the people identify Jesus in this moment? They identified him as a prophet in chapter 7. And I think that sets up for us contextually what's going to come in chapter 8 when Jesus moves into that prophetic identity um, through this first and paradigmatic parable of the sower who went sowing seed. Um, I'm, I don't know if I mentioned this last week. I may have mentioned it in passing, but I wanted to emphasize it this morning. The parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8, and its parallel in Matthew's Gospel, um, is often, I think it is actually, the first parable that Jesus actually teaches. It's, it gets us out of the gate. And it also becomes somewhat paradigmatic for the other parables that Jesus teaches as well. To, to put this in other ways, um, uh, the parable of the sower provides us a kind of lens, I think, for reading and understanding the other parables that we engage uh, along the way. I'll, I'll give you an example of how I think this works in other parts of the Bible as well. Um, I, I could change my mind on this, but I feel pretty confident in, in these interpretive moves. Uh, for example, Isaiah the prophet is often, if not most of the time, the first prophet um, of the list of the latter prophets. You have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the minor prophets, or what's called the Book of the Twelve. Um, so you have Isaiah. More often than not, in all the canonical lists from antiquity, Isaiah comes first. I think Isaiah's signal position is actually an interpretive uh, uh, signal position. Isaiah provides for us a kind of prophetic lens by which we read the rest of the prophetic literature as well. And when you, if you spend any time in the minor prophets, say for example Micah, and you're reading through Micah and you think, I've heard that somewhere. That sounds really familiar. Beating swords into plowshares and, and spears into pruning hooks. Where have I heard that? Oh yeah, Isaiah. In other words, you will find Isaiah's presence throughout the rest of the prophetic literature as if the other prophets are listening to Isaiah and their own prophetic ministry as well. In the New Testament, for example, I think we see this with the gospel, I mean, with the epistle of the Romans. There is no canonical list from antiquity 
um, second century AD and on that does not have Romans in the signal position of all of the Pauline letters. So you have Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, and sometimes those other letters can get fiddled around, but Romans always comes first. And I think that's important because I think Romans' position as the first of Paul's letters, um, this is just as an aside interest interest point, uh, off topic. Uh, but you might be interested to know there are those who've made, I think, pretty convincing arguments that Paul was his own collector of his letters and shaper of his material. In other words, Paul's writing these letters, but there's there's some indication that Paul himself may have been the one to shape his 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 um, apostolic epistolary legacy in the ways in which we we have it now. Um, unlike, say, for someone like Plato, Plato did not edit his own works. That was that was I think Cratylus, someone that came later, who came along to sort of edit Plato's works in a certain way, um, which has its own kind of importance for reading Plato. But the point is, I think Paul had a hand in the shaping of his own material. I think it's, that's interesting, at least. So so it could be that Paul put Romans first for a reason. I think I think that's I think it's probably the case. Luke eight. The first parable, the, sow, the sower who went sowing, I think provides for us a kind of lens for reading the rest of the parables. Let me quote to you a Herman Ritterboss on this point. Um, Ritterboss, who, um, if Ritterboss writes something on the New Testament, read it. Um, did you know this name, Ritterboss? Uh, a Dutch uh, Reformed uh, theologian from the Netherlands. Uh, wrote really, really fine uh, co- commentary on John, a really fine uh, commentary on the Gospels called The Coming of the Kingdom. Um, and he also wrote an, a, a, what's called an outline of Paul's theology, which he, I think, wrote in the maybe 60s or 70s. And well, I could, I, I'm just going to be hyperbolic maybe, but I don't think it's been surpassed yet as an outline of Paul's theology. I think it's outstanding. Do you know Ritterboss from your... Okay. Um, Anyway, Herman Ritterboss says this. um, The parable of the sower has priority over the others, not only as the first of a series, but also on account of its purport or its purpose. In many respects, it is the starting point and the basis for understanding all of the following parables. So I'm I'm leaning here, admittedly, on Ritterboss's idea that Luke chapter 8 stands in, in a paradigmatic Place Jesus in Luke chapter 7 is entering into this prophetic ministry and now we come into Luke chapter 8 and he begins to teach. And here's, we're going to need to read the parable. So let let me read the parable for us and then we'll uh, dive in. So here's the parable. While a large crowd, verse 4, was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Others' seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. And still other seed fell on good soil, and it came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more then was sown, and when he said this, he called out, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, a couple things to point out here. Uh, Number one, when Jesus says out loud, whoever has ears to hear, let that person hear, when he does that, Jesus is embodying the prophetic legacy of the Old Testament. Listen to this text from Jeremiah chapter 5. Hear this. 
O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears uh, but hear not. Um, so, so, so this whole notion about calling out for the hearer to hear and to listen and to turn the ear in is important because that is, at least within prophetic discourse, that's the language of the prophet that's calling the people of God to open their ears to the word of God that's coming to them in a moment of judgment, severity, or mercy. Recognizing, frankly, that in the prophetic tradition, you have both mercy and severity as flip sides of the same coin of God's identity. So there's a call to hear. If you remember, Isaiah's prophetic legacy was what in Isaiah chapter six was: um, you're going to go and speak to them, Isaiah, and they're not, and you're going to actually um, deafen their ears and blind their eyes by your word. That was a hard thing for Isaiah to hear. And remember, Isaiah's response was, well, how long, O Lord, do I have to do this? And you have to do this, Isaiah, until only a tenth of the land remains. So Isaiah was called to a prophetic legacy of uh, delivering a word that's never neutral. And the word that was delivered at that moment was a word that was rendering judgment upon the people of God. And when you get to Isaiah chapter 35, which is a kind of a bridge chapter into Isaiah chapter 40, the language of redemption... The fact that the moment is moving from a moment of judgment into a moment of renewal, all that is intimated in Isaiah's prophetic, prophetic tradition with these words, and now their eyes will be opened and their ears will be able to hear again. Um, so when Jesus is saying, let those who have ears to hear, hear, this is kingdom of God language. These are kingdom parables that, that it's talking about Jesus bringing a kingdom message to his people. And those who have ears to hear, those who have eyes to see, will be made open so that they can hear and receive uh, the word of God that is being brought to them in this moment. And that is not something that can be self-generated, as we heard this morning. That is the operative work of the Holy Spirit to open um, eyes and, uh, and deaf ears. All right, so that's one thing I wanted to point out about Jesus entering into this prophetic legacy. The second thing to point out here is the familiarity of the imagery. I love this about these these parables. They're, they're, they don't take hard work to kind of get the story. Um, I mean, I'll give you an example of this in our the gentle at home. I'm, I'm and I'm I'm no green thumb. I've killed so many rosemary bushes. I can't even you know. <laughs> Can't even keep track at this point in time. But over the winter, we decided to compost, you know, so I put all our scraps out our side door and, and then I would take it out to my little leaf pile and I'd work in the scraps and I'd wet it down and then I'd turn it every couple of weeks. Well, all preparing for Friday, last Friday, right? So I got my tiller. Um, and I, I spread all that stuff out. I got my tiller, tilled it all in, knew that the rain was coming, put some fertilizer out in the soil, um, knowing that I'm going to plant on Wednesday of this week. Um, someone brought me a tomato plant today. Church, how about that? I'm so kind to them. Um, so I, I've got it all laid out. And so we know the imagery, right? I, and and I, I, I hope uh, that these tomatoes will do well. Um, I've had good success with tomatoes. I've had great success with peppers. I've done cucumbers and squash and got nothing, right? You know, so I, I know what the imagery here is pretty straightforward. You want soil that's prepared to receive the seed that's given so that germination uh, can take place and life can come forth. So the, the imagery is very familiar. And then when you move into the parable here, it gets kind of humorous, I think. Jesus says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And then the disciples asked him what this parable meant. 
So even those who should have been primed to hear and receive, they didn't get it. So Jesus, what's this about? Now this, this is very important, I think. I mentioned to you last week that, you know, the, the young man apparently that preached the sermon on the parable and gave his own interpretation of the, of the parable of the sower, not having turned the page to see that Jesus gives his own interpretation of the parable. You know, so I, in other words, um, and I, from what I understand, Jesus' own self-interpretation tends to be better than ours of his. Um, so so the, the, the point is here, we need the interpretive work of Jesus Christ to understand um, the Word of God that's delivered. Now, I'm going to talk more about this probably before the morning is over, but if I forget... Let me stop here for a moment and draw out this very important point from this text. We don't have access to the Word of God. This parable that Jesus gives, remember, He is a prophet, but He's also the Word of God, unlike any other prophet. So He is both prophet and message at the same time. His identity is the very being of God's Word, which is identical with God's self as it's delivered to God's people. And here we see the disciples hearing God's Word delivered, but recognizing they cannot understand apart from the interpretive work of Jesus Christ Himself. I have to have Jesus, and we'll think about this, of course, in Trinitarian terms, and we already heard it so well presented this morning in our sermon uh, from Andrew. We need the presence of Jesus Christ by the operative work and effective work of the Holy Spirit to ever understand what Jesus is talking about. Even in things that seem so plain, like sowers going to sow seed, we must have the interpretive work of the Holy Spirit, which delivers to us the promised presence of Jesus in any moment when we engage the Bible. Now, I have to say this. I I think this is one of the great legacies of uh, the magisterial reformers that that get a lot of airtime around here, and rightly so. And that is, you have to recognize that in the early sixth, mid to late 16th century, now this was the rise of a whole renaissance of learning that was going on. Um, you know, I tell my students who think about young Cal, John Calvin. I mean, the first thing Calvin wrote was a commentary on, on Seneca's work on friendship. So they're reading the classics, they're, they're back to the sources, and that's sort of a resurgence of interest in the humanities is going on in the intellectual life of all of Europe at that moment. This is a remarkable time. And the reformers took that knowledge and the resurgence of intellectual vibrancy that was going on in university life all across uh, Central, especially into uh, Western Europe, and they took that to a methodology of reading the Bible. Getting back to the sources, working hard on Hebrew and Greek. I tell my students, you know, this is part of leaving everything to follow Jesus. You know, learn the languages, you work hard. And they were doing all of that in ways that are frankly remarkable given their lack of resources. I'll pick up Calvin's commentary today, look over at my shelf, and see a whole shelf of resources that Calvin would have drooled over. And there they all are for me at my disposal, easy access. Calvin didn't have that. And he would still have remarkable insight into the Hebrew text on the level of grammar and syntax. I'm just like, how did you do that? I mean, it's just remarkable. So for all of the hard work that the magisterial reformers would give to the technicalities of biblical exegesis, of reading a text closely and deeply, for all of that hard work, and by the way, they would refuse to allow anyone to to cut corners on that. It's important to do that hard work. Tell my students, it's important for you to give yourselves to these difficult disciplines. Give yourself to it. 
But for all that work, every magisterial reformer that we can name to the person would stand and say, but none of that can make the Bible happen. That's me being responsible with the gifts that God has given and the talents that God has given. That's me being responsible as a servant of God's Word, as a steward of the good gifts that God has given. But we can never make it happen. Because for it to be to happen, and you know what I mean when I say happen, right? For the Bible to be made present in our midst where Jesus Christ is present by the power of the Spirit, that that's in a providence other than our own control. We just don't have the ability to do that. That's what's so remarkable about Bible reading and teaching and preaching. It's unlike anything else. That's why I'm a little bit slow to talk about biblical interpretation as something that's similar to interpretation of other texts. There are things that are similar because it's still words on a page. I don't want to value that. But we're talking about something rather unique here when we affirm an inspired text whose author is God Himself, and that, by the way, that authorship and inspiration is not just a historical reality of the past, it's a current reality of the moment now. It is inspired now. And when it happens, when God's Word, here we are, is planted into our hearts in good soil that's been made open and fertile by the operative work of the Spirit, we didn't do it. You step back and go, God is at work again. Uh, by the effective power of His Word. We can't uh, make the Bible happen. We need Jesus to interpret the Bible. And by the way, we see Jesus in the Scriptures often interpreting the Bible. It's, it's very interesting. I Again, I, I don't want to chase this too far, but I'll just mention it illustratively. You know, the, the road to Emmaus and that final scene in Luke's Gospel. I, mean, I, I just I, I marvel at that text because here is Jesus, post-resurrected Jesus, sitting with his disciples in what he knows is a short amount of time before he leaves to be with the Father. The ascension is around the corner. And in the narratives that we have of that very unique moment in history, death, resurrection, resurrection appearances with his disciples, and then ascension, and that very brief window of time that the Bible lets us see into, what do we see Jesus doing? We see him explaining the Bible and explaining the Bible as it relates specifically to his own person and work. Um, I, I just think, and by the way, I don't think when we go to heaven we become God. I just I think um, we participate in God's life. Um, we become fully human in the new heavens and the new earth. And we, need to, we could talk about that another time. But that, that means we're not going to become omniscient or omnipotent in the new heavens and the new earth, that God is still going to be God and we're still going to be creatures in the new heavens and the new earth. And that means we'll get to learn forever. Right? I mean, think, Bible study with Jesus forever. Um, and, and I think, I believe it will happen. I mean, I think that will be actually kind of uh, remarkable. Um, whether or not we're reading Faulkner, I don't know. That's another... <laughs> hope so, yeah. Alright, so uh, those two things. Now, uh, to Jesus' explanation. Okay, here's Jesus' explanation. So his disciples said, uh, well, we didn't get that, so what does it mean? And he said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you. I'm going to give them to you right now. But to others I speak in parables. So that, and he quotes Isaiah here, though seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. We talked about that last week. And then Jesus says, this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear. 
And then the devil comes and he takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and may not be saved. And those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they, they have no root and they believe for a while, but in the time of testing they, they, they fall away. Verse 14, the seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by life's worries and riches and pleasures and they, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and a good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. This is what this parable is about. God's word is sown among the various soils of men and women's hearts. If I can quote Ritterboss one more time, he says this, and I think this is the force of the parable. In spite of Satan's power, in spite of the hardness of hearts, in spite of the cares of this world and the delusion of riches and wealth, the crop is prepared by God's powerful word and the work of Christ. Now, I think that's interesting and an important interpretive move, move because I think our point, our tendency in reading this parable might be to begin to compare the different soils or the different accounts and begin to think of it primarily in, well, um, in terms of a judgment value about whose soil is better than others. The point that Ritterboss seems to think is going on here, and I'm sympathetic to this reading. I don't think it's a totalizing reading, but I'm sympathetic to it. The point is there are all kinds of difficulties and hurdles that appear in this world of our existence that would make the germination of God's Word difficult. Uh, the devil, um, which we just don't talk about the devil very much. We live in such a strange world, in a modern world. I don't think about the devil very much. I, again, I won't say his name. I've got a son right now who's thinking about the devil a lot. I think that children are, who are especially, whose imaginations are fertile, you start talking about the devil and it scares them. I've got a son right now who's scared of the devil and wants to talk about it a lot. Um, and, and I don't, I don't want to kill that fear. I mean, in other words, that the, the devil, um, is real. I, mean, I know it sounds so bizarre and, un, and so mythological to talk that way, but, Boy, I tell you what, you t medieval Christians come in here and they, they would be scared to go into the woods at night because the devil might be there, right? Um, so I don't, I'm not encouraging that, by the way, but I'm just saying the devil, um, who I do, do think is a personality, but also represents all of the forces that stand against God and his kingdom, the devil's real. And he's, and he plucks. And he does so. Think about C.S. Lewis's um, screw tape letters. He plucks the Word of God in ways um, that are uh, um, subversive. Not through the front door. And he, the devil has his own indirect communicative discourse. And the devil can appear on your living room sofa without even knowing as well. Uh, I think C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, by the way, is one of the greatest... Um, theologies of the devil that came out of the 20th century. Um, you know, re religious lethargy, um, apathy. I mean, the ways in which the, the devil kind of gets in uh, to the back door. The devil's real. Um, the cares of this world are, are real. The delusion of riches and the belief that riches will bring security and comfort and confidence ultimately, those challenges are real. And yet, despite that, I think is what Jesus is saying here. Despite that, 
the word of God still finds soil in which it can grow and bear fruit. The word of God still does its work, despite the fact that we live in a world where there are challenges at every turn. There are alleys that we can turn down, and the devil's down there. The cares of the world are down there. Um, think Pilgrim's Progress. I mean, that's very much a part of the understanding of the Christian life as a pilgrimage that's met with hurdles around every corner. And despite that, the Word of God can still do its operative work. That's, again, I believe the gospel word of this parable. The kingdom of God is in our midst. The Word of God brings the kingdom of God. And the Word of God is doing that kind of work all over the world, despite the fact that there are difficulties and hurdles at every turn. So there's two things that I want to, you to take away from, from this. Number one. Oh, we might hit. The, oh, okay, we're okay. Number one. And so much more could be said here, but here's two things. I do think this parable wants us to think in terms of the confidence we should have in the Word of God to perform its work in building the kingdom of God. I'll say that one more time. Confidence in the Word of God to perform its work in building the kingdom of God. Um, and this is a challenge, I think. Um, it's a challenge in a world of local church and ministry life that itself is in a kind of competitive market, right? That thinks about how other churches are growing and what they're doing and what are their strategies. And I'm, and I'm not opposed to any of that. It's way beyond my pay grade. I don't do that kind of stuff. That's why I live in an ivory tower. But I think there are challenges um, for local church ministry to think in comparative terms about, well, what, what, what new strategy do we need to get this thing going? Um, and I don't deny the, the good of much of that, but a lot of it's not good. Uh, especially if it undercuts what this parable is trying to communicate, I believe. And that is for the kingdom of God to grow and to take root so that the roots become stable and firm and then germinate in such a way that they produce fruit. For that to happen, the word of God must be central to the ministry of the local church. must be central. Confidence in God's word to do its work. Spurgeon um, would often give an apologetic for his non-apologetic approach to the Bible. So, for example, some he would say, How shall you know that God wrote this book? That is just what I shall not try to prove to you, Spurgeon would say. And when he was asked about this publicly one time, why do you not defend the Bible more? you got to remember, Spurgeon's late 19th century, Victorian England. This is the rise. I mean, the, the, the historical, critical, modernist approach to Bible reading was in full bloom by the time we get to the 1900s. Okay, so Spurgeon's in the middle of this. People say, why don't you do more work defending the Bible? And this is what Spurgeon said. I don't defend a lion. I just let a lion out of its cage. Here's what St. Augustine said in his little treatise called De Doctrina on Christian doctrine. Instead, Augustine says, we should rather think and believe that what is written there that is in the Bible is better and truer, even if its meaning is hidden, than any good ideas we can think up for ourselves. A Karl Barth, uh, borrowing right out of the Augustine playbook here, said, the Bible, in its most difficult and least assimilable parts, has better things to say than the best of our theological constructions. Um, the Bible's better than your favorite Christian author. 
whoever he or she is, right? Um, and frankly, you know, sometimes that that this is an article of faith. Now, and I hope this isn't offensive to you. Again, I almost wish this weren't recorded. But I, I hope you know that this is not that I'm comparing the quality of the literature of the Bible over against other literature saying you should just know just the quality of this jumps off, your, off the page. It's just inherently better on the surface. That, this, it's not making that kind of claim. Now, I'll just tell you right now, the King James Version translation of Psalm 23, the Lord is our shepherd, the one that we all know and hope will be read at our graveside when we're dead. We, we, we love that. I'll tell you right now, that Elizabethan English of the King James Version is way better than the Hebrew. I mean, the Hebrew is... You're like, oh, that's awful. Don't, don't do the Hebrew at my graveside. I want, I want Shakespeare in English at my graveside, right? Um, so this is not a claim about literary quality per se. This is an article of faith about what God has said this word is. That's why it's an article of faith. A confidence to believe that the Bible itself is better than what Tim Keller says about it. Ooh, I said it. <laughs> Here's what Spurgeon says. I have marked that if ever we have a conversion at any time, in 99 cases out of 100, the conversion is traceable to the text or to some scripture quoted in the sermon than to any trite or, or original saying of the preacher. See, all these statements are statements witnessing to what we would call in theology land the sufficiency of scripture. The church and the Christian Christians within it, we are the creations of the word of God. We are born by the Word of God. And I'll say this, just experientially, that in my limited experience in Birmingham, Alabama, and, and this, is, this is my place now, in the teaching that I do in various churches and at the Lay Academy at Beeson and whatever opportunity the Lord and His kindness gives me to stand up and talk about the Bible, I have been amazed over a 13, 14 year span now to see and experience how hungry people are for the simple teaching of God's Word. Um, there's a hunger for that. Why? Because there's, there's a promise that God has attached to this. He's promised it. And we would be remiss not to remind God of His promise. If you ever read Luther's prayers, by the way, Luther's talking in ways to God. Sometimes you go, you know, calm. At least say, sir, or something in there. Because <laughs> no, what, what's he doing? He's, he's unfettered in his approach to reminding God of his promises and leveraging God with his own promises. You gave a promise to us about your word, now do it. Now do it now. So that's number one, a confidence in God's word. And then number, we have time, number two. Jesus says to take heed to how you hear. So a confidence in God's word and number two, a taking heed to how we hear. Reformation thought tended to emphasize the metaphor of hearing more than seeing because hearing is more passive and receptive than seeing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Oswald Beyer, one of the greater Lutheran theologians of the latter part of the 20th century, I think he's still alive actually. Oswald Beyer says, the human being can only be considered a person who listens. There's only a human being when he or she is completely an ear. The human being is thus human in that he or she is addressed or spoken to. 
Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And Jesus speaks to our confidence in the efficacy of God's word alongside the call to be really human. And what does it mean to be really human? It means to be a listening agent. Give heed to how you hear. Listen to what Thomas Cranmer said in his homily on reading scripture. I love this. As you have any zeal to the right and pure honoring of God, as you have any regard to your own soul, apply yourself chiefly above all things to read and to hear God's word. This will sound like a colic, many of you know, but this is coming from a sermon. Mark diligently therein what his will is that you shall do. And with all your endeavor, apply yourselves to follow the same. Uh, Cramer goes on uh, to say this in a fruitful, uh, in his in the uh, fruitful um, exhortation to the reading and the knowledge of Holy Scripture. That's an awesome title. This is what he says. I love this. If you be afraid to fall into error by reading the Bible, I get this question all the time. Like, I, I, you know, should I should I come to Beeson and get a degree? And my, my answer to that is, come on. I mean, we love to have you, but um, we tend to think I can avoid making mistakes in my Bible reading. Um, by attendance to knowledge first and foremost. Um, and I'm, I mean, I pay the mortgage doing that. Okay, so I'm not downplaying this. But it's not where the reformers would start. It's not where Augustine, it's not where Cranmer, it's not where Karl Barth, it's not where they would start. This is where they would start in how to read the scriptures well and to avoid getting into error. So here he says, read it humbly with a meek and lowly heart to the intent that you may glorify God and not yourself with the knowledge of it. In other words, if you're doing the kind of, you know, middle brow thing where you're, you know, reading a, you know, you, you want to sort of gain some nice phrases that you can drop at the next cocktail party you're at, and that's what you, you want to kind of, you know, flex the muscles of your knowledge. This is not the way that you're, you're down arrow road number one. I remember this scene in, in a Woody Allen movie. Uh, I think it was called Match Point, where a young man was breaking into the kind of upper echelon of the, Lo- the London business and cultural elite. Um, and he was from, you know, the other side of the tracks, but he was being embraced by this family, but he couldn't hang with them in dinner conversation because they were just so learned. I mean, you, you've been around people like this. You know, it's so learned. He's like, I, I don't even know what you're talking about, but I'm fascinated. It's interesting, you know. <laughs> you, you seem to have an opinion on everything. I'm so, it's wonderful. Um, so this was him. I mean, he was in this setting, and there's a scene in the movie. Um, nothing is said. It's just uh, the camera pans. The young man is in his bedroom. He's got open the Cambridge Companion to Dostoevsky. And he's just reading. And then it goes to the next scene, and he's at a dinner party. What's he doing? He's not reading the Brothers Karamazov. He's not reading Crime and Punishment. He's reading the Cambridge Companion so he can have a few intelligent things to say tomorrow night while he's getting ready. Kramer says, if that's what Bible reading and theology is about for you, then you're down the wrong track. Rather, come with a meek and a lowly heart and read it not without daily praying to God that He would direct your reading to good effect and take upon you to expound it no further than you can plainly understand it. Don't you love that? I mean, don't if you don't know what it's talking about, just say it. I read Joel 3 the other day. Didn't get it. I had to do that one time, by the way, in a lay academy class at Beeson. I mean, I'm embarrassed, but you know, I'm teaching through the minor prophets. I've spent a lot of time in a lot of the minor prophets, but not Zechariah. 
Um, and, and I just didn't have a lot of time to get ready for the night. And I looked down, it's 4 o'clock. I'm lecturing at 6. And I, and I it's like, I don't have much. And we just had to kind of come clean. And it's like, I, I don't know. Zechariah's hard. You're dismissed. Um, <laughs> for as St. Augustine saith, the knowledge of Holy Scripture is great, large, and a high place, but the door is very low, so that the high and the arrogant person cannot run into it. But he must stoop low um, and humble himself or herself that he shall enter into it. Presumption and arrogancy is the mother of all error, but humility need fear it not. John Calvin, in his commentary on Acts chapter 8, says that when the Ethiopian eunuch looked at Philip and he said, how can I understand unless someone teach me? Calvin says the eunuch just demonstrated that he's a Christian scholar because he asked a question in humility. Take heed to how we hear to why we engage the Scriptures. We engage the Scriptures not as an end unto themselves, but so that we can come into the very life of God Himself and the reality of His Word and His truth and His Gospel and His kingdom efforts, which will be consummated in time, would become more true and more plain and more present in our existence. And when that happens, when we take heed to how we hear, when that happens, we know that God is at work. And if God is at work, there's not a lot of room for arrogance in the interpretation of God's Word. So, Lord, thank You for this uh, parable. Um, give us wisdom to know which ones to engage next. Um, and thank You for Your Word. Help us to have confidence in, in it, Lord. And, Lord, help us to have a humility and rightly ordered ears to enter into Your Word to hear um, so that our hearts and our souls and our minds will be lifted to You. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.